BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and my guest is Dr. Ken Ginsberg. Dr. Ginsburg is the founding director of the Center for Parent and Teen Communication at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Ginsburg is a renowned expert in adolescent medicine. He's a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and he is the author of five award-winning parenting books, including Building Resilience in Children and Teens and a really cool multimedia toolkit on reaching teens. Both of them are published by the American Academy of Pediatrics. I was so thrilled to welcome him to Raising Good Humans. For those of you who have teenagers or are going to have teenagers, this is a really great conversation on resilience and adolescence during this time. We're also talking about what you can do to bolster and support your teenagers while offering the independence that they crave. And we're talking about what you can do if you're feeling a little bit worried about things. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review if you're feeling positive. And of course, DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And I'll be answering live Q&As on Clubhouse as soon as I figure out how it works. So come join me on Clubhouse and we can talk about all of the episodes. So I think there are two messages that parents get that are complete opposites and both probably detrimental. And I would love to, for you to speak to them. One is you don't matter. These are the developmental phases. This is what the world is throwing at you. And this is what it is. And the other is, you matter so much, it's all your fault. If there's one message that I want parents who are listening to hear, it's about how much they matter during adolescence, as much as they ever have, perhaps more. Why does this message matter so much? Because we send all of these messages to parents of adolescents that tell them that actually they don't matter. It begins when, you know, you're in the line, you're in the grocery store line, your 11-year-old is having her head on your shoulder and you're having just one of those great parent-child moments, right? And the a mother behind you says, hang on tight, get those hugs while you can. She's become a monster you may not recognize and might not even like. We create this mythology around adolescence and parents. And it's this mythology that says, kids don't care what adults think. They don't like their parents anymore. They only care about their peers. 
None of that is true. It's been scientifically proven. Kids care what parents think incredibly. And while it is true that kids do care what their peers think, and because they are growing up and moving into a new social world where they're going to be interacting with their peers and their brains are designed to love being with their peers. And despite the fact that they might push you away while they're moving into the peer world, the fact is they care about what we say and think more than what they care about what peers think. And the other fact is as their emotions are moving up and moving down and heightened and sometimes feeling low, it is our stabilizing force, our unwavering and unconditional love that gives them the security to know that they're okay just the way they are. We matter so deeply. Just letting a pause be there for everybody to just let that sink in. Yeah. And you know, what we don't want when we talk about how much parents matter is for it to backfire and go in the other direction, right? We don't don't want parents to say, I've got to be there. I've got to hover. I've got to make my decisions or their decisions. Did you hear what I just said? My decisions, right? (laughs) Well, I have to make their decisions for them. That's not the way to go either. Adolescence is a unique developmental time where kids are stretching their limits, exploring new boundaries, imagining how to stand on their own. If we don't let them learn to stand on their own, they're going to push us away because we couldn't stop them if we wanted to. What they need is the security to know that as they're testing their limits, we're still there for them no matter what. But we have to let them fall down sometimes learn to recover. That's the essence of how they build their resilience. And this year was a big resilience building year, potentially for some kids. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We'll we'll talk about kids for whom this was too much, Mm -hmm. Um, nor would I wish this upon anyone, but I like that the way you frame the opportunity of what this year has been for adolescents. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about it. Absolutely. You know, There's no question that this year has been particularly challenging for adolescents, but let's start by understanding why. We can't paint this as if it's because adolescents are broken, because if we do that, it will backfire. Why has this year been so hard? This year has been so hard because adolescents' job is to expand their boundaries, and we've been tightening their boundaries. Their job is to forge new social connections. That's how they're going to be ready for the workplace. That's how we're going to get grandchildren eventually, right? This is their job. And all of that has been taken away, right? So we have to be empathetic to why this has been tough rather than condemning for it. But we've got to go a step further. I believe emphatically that we have the seeds of the greatest generation ever right now. Why? Because every generation is defined by formative experiences and exposures during their childhood and adolescent years. You know, the easiest example is thinking about depression-era kids, right? Depression-era kids 
learn to stretch the dollar, right? Because they knew what frugality meant and they never knew where the next dollar was going to come. It flavored the way they led their lives. It flavored the way they parented. It flavored the way they grandparented. So let's look right now at what is happening. This generation is exposed to human isolation and separation. This generation is disconnected, forcibly so. This generation is needing to worry about the health and well being of their grandparents. This generation is part of the awakening of social justice and equity issues that have been hiding in plain sight forever. This generation is becoming aware of things like climate crisis. But what does it mean? It means that the seeds of the greatest generation are being sown right now. Imagine what it's going to be like for them to hug their grandparents again. Imagine what it's going to be like for them to be in school casually together, to be on teams together again to want to talk and be together again. A year ago, kids could live next door to each other and they'd rather be texting. Now they want to throw out their phones to have human connection. If this is the generation that can be imprinted with the importance and the value of human connection and of the fact that together we are stronger than the sum of our individual parts, If this can be the generation that is committed to justice, to venerating the elderly, oh my gosh, am I excited. It's all about what we do now. If we get out of the way, the ingredients are in place for the lessons to imprint on this generation in a way that they will repair the world, right? It's all there. But I don't know if you've noticed, but some of us are behaving really badly and really undermining this potential message of human connection and togetherness and solidarity and unity and community. So let's do better, huh? Yeah. So let's talk about that. So what, without blaming parents, what can we do better so that we can let these kids unfold into this greatest generation. Yeah. So I'm not into blaming parents. I'm actually not into blaming anybody because that's part of the problem is that our whole culture is using versus theming. Yes. And and really divisive. So I'm literally the last guy who's going to do that. So it's not about what we don't do. It's what we do. And what we do is we celebrate community. We celebrate family. We do something crazy right now, which is that we look at the fact that we are all experiencing intense emotions and we use this shared opportunity to celebrate, to elevate the presence of emotions in our lives. And what we do is we help kids learn the most valuable resilience lesson that we can put in their lives which is that alone, we are vulnerable. You know, like a stick that can blow in the wind or break easily. But when joined with another stick, it's much harder to bend. 
when joined with a bundle of sticks, it's impossible to break. Together, we are more powerful than the sum of our individual parts. So that is something to do with physics and like everything to do with spirituality. Really? I was going to say you're like a, a adolescent medicine rabbi. <laughs> totally. But the point is that if we can put forth these messages, elevate, celebrate emotions, when we can talk about the power of sticking together, when we can openly talk about vulnerability and how it's our job, indeed our privilege, to support other human beings, then what we're going to do is just go with the natural flow of who adolescents are anyway, right? They're our idealists. They're our visionaries. That's who they are. It's their righteous indignation that moves us forward as a society. So we just have to get out of the way and notice some of these forces that are already happening and reinforce them. So let's get into some practical applications of this because everything you're saying is so beautiful. And obviously I agree with you completely. And I love how you said that. I can hear different scenarios. How old are your kids now, by the way? They're older. My kids are 25. I have identical girls. Right. They're like probably fully developed-ish. <laughs> They're still my little girls and always will. They're your babies. So thinking about teenagers, thinking about them in this setting, and obviously you're working with enough teenagers to see what's happening in the world. When they're in a mood and they are pushing away, but they have nowhere to go because they can't escape like they normally could, how do you draw the line between recognizing their need for independence and recognizing your need to have a mutually respectful interaction? There are multiple answers to this question or multiple things I'd like to comment on. The first is that when they're pushing me away, I need to understand that that is not a rejection of who I am and that in some ways they're pushing me away because it feels safely to push me away, safer than it is to push other people. It also is the fact that they push me away because they know they're going to have to grow independent from me. So actually, what seeming rejection of me is actually a demonstration of the fact that they love me so much it hurts. That's what I need to do to stay sane. That's right. You need to remind yourself of that. I really take it personally. Absolutely. And once I take it personally in my home, then I become defensive. And when I become defensive, I become angry. And when I am angry, I can't parent well. Why? Let's go to the next step. The next step is you're talking about their emotions and how I can support their emotions. What's my job? My job is to teach them how to, or actually to model for them, how to self-regulate their own emotions. The step in between is for me to co-regulate with them. In English, that means I lend them my calm. That's right. It's like I'm on an airplane and there's turbulence. It's terrifying. Do I look at the guy next to me whose knuckles are white? No. 
I look at the flight attendant and if they're still serving snack mix, I'm chilling. Honestly, that is my favorite co-regulation I've heard yet. God bless. It's a great one. And it resonates with me because I always look at the the flight attendant. Absolutely. So we, even as our kids are pushing us away, even as they're being emotionally volatile, we remain calm, not because we are flat, but because we are strategic and wise, right? So the way to get our kids to calm is to lend them our calm. And how do we do it? You know, if you got a five-year-old, look like the duck gliding on water. Look like the one that's just smoothly walking through or gliding through the water, even when there's a little turbulence. If you have a teenager, don't look like that duck because you'll make them crazy. Because they'll, they'll think it's like absolutely impossible for them to achieve. I'm so glad you said that too. Keep going. If you have a teenager, look like the little duck on the water who's waddling like crazy. And the only reason you're staying on top is because your little feet are underneath the water paddling like wild. And show your kids and share with your kids what you're doing to keep gliding. That's how we co-regulate. It's not by looking like robots. It's by talking and showing what we do. If your kid's driving you crazy, tell them. And then say, you know what? I love you so much that I can't give you my best self. That's why I'm going to take a shower. That's right. After I do, (laughs) I'm going to be able to give you, I'm going to be able to be here for you. Mm -hmm. You know? Tell them what you're doing, whether it's going down to the basement and drawing or whether it's praying or whether it's screaming into a pillow, whether it's calling your best friend, tell them what you're doing. Let them know that it's okay to have emotions. I'm glad you said that too, because even though you're co-regulating, this does not mean you're a robot parent. It just means you're talking about your strategies because of course, let that duck, I'm sorry, everybody can't see you paddle with a duck paddling um, quickly, but, but it's a great, it's another great image to think about because we don't even want to raise our kids to think that everybody's super calm all the time. That would be very disturbing to get out into the world and find out that in fact, I mean, it would make you feel very flawed. It would it's make, you feel make them ashamed of the emotions they have now. That's right. I want to use this moment. I want to use the emotionality of adolescence in general, but I want to use this moment of a shared experience to take away the shame and stigma that we have as human beings because we're emotional. I want our kids to learn how to regulate themselves, but I also want them to understand that having emotions is what leads you to have a rich life. You know, you want to know who I am? I'm a guy. I'm, I'm a little man who's had the best life in the world, but who, when I was 17, got deeply depressed because there was no model for a deeply sensitive 17-year-old man to understand that not only was it okay to have feelings, but that it predicted I was going to be the best or a better father and a, a husband who tries to be good and a doctor who heals. I didn't know any of that. I just thought that having emotions meant I wasn't masculine or something. Uh I want 
I want people to know that emotions are good mm-hmm. and that we regulate them, but they, these are the things that are that are the zest of life. Beekeepers Naturals is disrupting the conventional medicine cabinet by creating nature-powered medicine that actually works. Beekeepers Naturals uses a very special potent natural ingredient called propolis. And if you haven't heard about it yet, it's time to hear what the buzz is all about. (laughs) Bee propolis acts as the medicine of the beehive and it fights germs and protects the bees with over 300 beneficial vitamins and minerals. And it's just as beneficial for human beings as it is for our favorite pollinators. I use the bee immune propolis throat spray all the time when I have to speak, like when I'm interviewing someone for Raising Good Humans. And for a limited time, Beekeepers Naturals is offering my listeners an exclusive deal. They will ship you a free two-week supply of bee immune propolis throat spray. You just have to pay $5 of shipping. And to claim this deal, you visit beekeepersnaturals.com slash humans. This deal is not available on the regular website. So you have to go to B-E-E-K-E-E. P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash H-U-M-A-N-S. And this deal is good for March and April, 2021. You can also find Beekeepers Naturals nationwide in over 2,000 stores, including Target, Whole Foods, and Sprouts. Plus, they're taking care of the bees, and that is always a good thing. Pepet is a clean baby and mom care brand with a mission to give every family the best start. Any parent wants what's best for their children, and that includes using only the safest products on their delicate skin. Pepet has quickly become a customer favorite for its ultra-gentle baby lotions, oils, and washes. And right now, you can get 30% off its entire collection of personal care items. Pepet sets the standard of clean and best-performing products. The FDA bans only 12 potentially harmful ingredients in skincare products, Papet bans more than 2,000, ensuring all of its products are safe, effective, and only use non-toxic ingredients. Papet's products are also EWG certified, vegan, hypoallergenic, sustainable, pediatrician, and dermatologist approved, and all of Papet's products are made with the key ingredient of squalane. When babies are born, their skin is coated with a creamy substance called the vernix, which provides powerful natural protection for newborns in the first few hours after birth. This vernix is rich with the ultra-hydrating molecule squalene and has a nourishing waterproofing effect on the baby's skin. That squalene is your baby's built-in moisturizer. And eventually, they'll need a little bit of help. Visit Pipette Baby. Dot com, P-I-P-E-T-T-E baby.com and get 30% off with humans. Ancient Nutrition has the goal to transform the health of every individual on the planet. So they create whole food nutritional products made with real ingredients for real results. Every product they create is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient Nutrition is based in traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations and they combine it with today's modern research. 
Ancient nutrition believes that proper nutrition isn't just about eating the right foods. It's about ingredients your body can truly use. So they source the world's highest quality ingredients and rigorously test them for pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals. And they create products that your body can easily digest and absorb. Every one of those products has a purpose. My favorite, I think you may have heard me say this before, is the multi-collagen protein. You take this unflavored scoop and put this powder into your morning coffee. It dissolves right away. And it's good for your bones and your skin and your joints and your hair. And I... I think it's really awesome and easy, easy, easy. So go to ancientnutrition.com and use the code HUMANS, H-U-M-A-N-S for 20% off your first Ancient Nutrition purchase. Hi guys, my name is Sarah Nicole and I am the host of the Papaya Podcast, where each week we dish out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom all through candid conversations in a very real and tangible way. I want everyone to know that they're not alone and that we share in these experiences called life. And sometimes when we get to know somebody else's story, it changes ours a little bit as well. So I want you to tune in with us on Mondays, subscribe, rate and review it and keep these conversations going with us. You can tune in behind the scenes at the Papaya Podcast and the birds with Maya on Instagram as well. Can't wait to see you next week. When a kid's emotions feel scary for a parent, when it goes beyond what we think of as the natural waves in the ocean and it becomes like a tsunami, at what point do you recommend parents say, here are the three things I can, I'm noticing or whatever it is, I think we need to get some support, some extra support. So I'm not sure I have three things. I don't know why I said three things, by the way. I just made that up. People love things in threes. And I, I think in poetry. So here's the thing. The first thing you need to know about adolescent depression, and this is something that I could, I would scream from the rooftops if they let me. That that it's quieter than screaming from the rooftops. Yeah. People think that depression in adolescence looks like what it does in adults. Mm. So they're looking for people who are eating too much, not eating enough, sleeping too much, not sleeping enough. But more than anything else, they're looking for people who are sad. And that's true for half of adolescence. But what they're missing is that for half of adolescents who are depressed, it doesn't uh, show up as sadness. It shows up as rage and irritability, Mm -hmm. right? And we don't want to miss these kids. So... I will tell you that the most important thing to do is to ask. Honestly, there has never been a kid who's gotten into trouble because a parent asked if they had to be worried about them. Not once. What you say is, darling, you don't seem like yourself. And you are so important to me that if you, uh, you, you may deserve more support to get through this time, And I will get it for you, always standing along your side. And then what do you do as that parent? So what are signs you look for? You look for rage or sadness. You look for withdrawal. Clearly, you look for drug use, right? You look for people who are tired all the time or have no energy or just major changes in behavior. And And Right, if if they were low energy out of the gate, it's like, is there a change or a shift in the way that they've been? And they're now suddenly full of rage or they're lower energy. 
Mm. or they're pretending they don't care, right? All the time, parents come to me and say, my kid is lazy, he's not motivated, and they miss the fact. And then I'll say things like, has this always been the case? And they'll say like, no, he's always been such a sensitive child. Well, that's not a kid who's lazy. That's a kid who's caring so much it hurts and who's shutting themselves down. They're feigning the laziness. So look at the package. Think in poetry. Think about who your child is and see the difference. And now take on your role. A good parent is not a parent who has a perfect child. A good parent is not a parent who has the perfect child. It is the parent who stands by the child during moments of imperfection. And the point is this, the point is that we we give some regulating messages and the regulating messages are not it's going to be okay because that, it, it just feels too saccharine sweet. Tell them instead, you're gonna get through this. Mm-hmm. It's going to be okay, minimizes their emotion. I don't want you to minimize their emotion. I want them to understand that you get the depth of their emotion, but you give them the reassurance that they will get through it. And then you let them know that you're going to get them the support they deserve. Now, let's, you, let's listen to that word, because I, I want your listeners to use it. Don't talk about what people need. That sounds like a piece of them that's missing. Talk about what they deserve to be their best selves, what they deserve to be happy again. And tell them you're going to find a professional who can give them what you don't know how to give them, who knows how to really support them in the way they need, but also who they don't have to worry about that professional's feelings. They don't have to worry about pleasing or displeasing them. That professional is just there to support them. But you will always remain as their mother and father, taking the role that no one else can, which is thinking they're perfect just the way they are, standing by their side without judgment. There are parents who think that, you know, kids are, Uh, just acting up for attention and you don't want to give them attention because it'll reinforce it. And that's just not the case. And there, it's very clear, all the people who worry the most about depression and all the people who worry most about, God forbid, suicide, know that asking about it does not create it. What it does is it takes away the stigma of talking about it. And what you do is you ask very clearly, you're not yourself. I'm feeling worried about you. Do I have to worry? If you ever felt so badly, do you know that I could get you through anything standing by your side? Always know you can come to me, right? Um, Those are the conversations we need to have with our kids. Yeah. So another thing that I think I've heard quite a bit about the the worries for parents have been that there's there's this missing academic experience that they're having. So what they may not be getting academically, they are getting in all of these 
I mean, what you talked about, I think was who would not want to cling to that opportunity for kids to be a generation that has gratitude for being able to take care of their grandparents, being able to turn the world around and have an appreciation for things. You can't really force that in a lesson. Yeah. And it's, it's more than just that huge picture of this being the greatest generation ever. It's also the fact that there are opportunities to build resilience everywhere. Pretty much every emotion we have that is not denied creates an opportunity to um, build resilience. Meaning that even as we are disappointed that our kids are not having as good an exposure to academics, the exposure they're having to life can be incredible. And I have to tell you that, you know, when it comes to building resilience in our kids, what we say to them is kind of not as effective as how we live our lives and the lessons they walk away from. And so that's like good news. Like what I'm really about to say is if you demonstrate these things yourself, your kids will be okay. But If you want, let's just walk through some of these basic resilience lessons that now's the time to really reinforce. Mm -hmm. The first one I want to say is self-forgiveness and compassion, right? We have lived through a couple decades where the responsibility parents feel is absolutely overwhelming. Uh, People have been juggling two or three balls baseline, have felt incredibly responsible for their children's performance and ultimate success in a way that I think hasn't helped the kids, but I actually think has hurt the kids. And along comes a pandemic. So we've been juggling three balls. Along comes the pandemic. And now we are worried about our family. Working becomes more complicated. Keeping our kids educated becomes more complicated. Suddenly there's four, five, and six balls in the air. What's going to happen? You're going to drop them. So the first thing we do is we have the experience of self-compassion and forgiveness, and we show it. Perfection in truth was never an option. It was never an option. We got ourselves locked into believing it was. Now we all know it's not. This is an opportunity to show our kids how to be compassionate with yourself, forgiving just like you should be with other people. But there's something else. There's the ability to learn our priorities. So now you're juggling. Suddenly there were six balls in the air. A few of them are going to drop. I want you to look in two directions. Look up and see which ones are still in the air. When you look up and see which are still in the air, that's going to tell you what matters. I'll bet you you're going to find family, health, hopefully commitment to justice. You're going to find those things there. And now look at what's on the ground. Look down. Because those are the things that may have never mattered in the first place. Things that a year and a half ago we might have thought defined us, and suddenly we realize they don't. What? an opportunity for personal growth. What an opportunity to raise kids with stronger values. So now let's think about 
a concept of peace in your home, shalom bayit, right? A concept of really creating a sanctuary in your home. The reality is that the world is completely chaotic right now. And what that means is that in order for us to be well, we have to create a sanctuary. And that is not going to occur passively because when there's a lot of tension outside, the natural thing human beings do is bring it inside. In fact, when there's a lot of tension outside, we often take out our anxieties in the safest place we can, which is with the people we love. But how do people really thrive? How do families really come together? They really come together when they become a sanctuary against a complicated, turbulent world. That takes real intentionality. So if we within our homes are honest, again, I'm so not into being a robot. Let's be honest. Things out there are feeling awful. That's why we have to double down on respecting each other, on giving each other a break, giving each other free passes. You create peace in your home as a sanctuary. And let me tell you something. If we do this, not only will our homes be healthier today, your grandchildren will be healthier because they will have that lesson we passed along for the generations. So here's the thing. Uncertainty is incredibly uncomfortable for human beings. And the reason I think that this is so difficult psychologically for us as a society is that uh, we don't know where things are coming from. Like quite literally, the virus is invisible. Most of the forces of racism are hiding in plain sight, but they're, but they're hiding, right? They're about structural and systemic forces. We're designed to run from tigers, right? We're designed to see a tiger, to jump, to get out of our seats, and to escape. That's how we're designed. But the scariest thing in humanity is not a tiger because we see it. The scariest thing for humans is the tiger lurking in the grass, Mm. never knowing when it's going to come or where it's going to attack. It makes you have to stay anxious, ready to jump at any time, hypervigilant, always worried. So right now, 2020 and 2021 is nothing but uncertainty and tigers in the grass. Uncertainty is so uncomfortable for human beings that what do they do? They create certainty out of uncertainty. They imagine the worst. And that is what catastrophic thinking is. Catastrophic thinking. I've met it here and there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, I, I've, I've come by a lot of dishonestly, right? Um, I've met it as well. And you create the worst case scenario thinking, if I can handle this, I can handle anything. And in a way, it's more comfortable to take something to the extreme than to acknowledge the truth, which is, I don't know. But when we live in catastrophe, that becomes our reality. And we're always running from the tiger. And when you're running from the tiger, you can't access your thinking powers because you're not supposed to say to the tiger, hey, let's work this out. Nor can you access your emotional connection abilities because you're not supposed to say to the tiger, like, hey, you know what? I, I want to understand what it's like for you to want to eat me, right? 
So when we can take this moment and say, whoa, what's reality? Let me live in the moment. Let me catch myself when I'm beginning to spin out of control. Let me catch those thoughts. Then we're able to tackle what we can tackle in the here and now and in the real world. This lesson, because we're all having a common experience, can teach people to be emotionally more healthy in 60 years if we can imprint it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, just the skill of reminding yourself I'm not being chased by a tiger. Yeah. I always say bear, but I, I can swap out for tiger because okay. um, for today we'll switch. But I do think just that pause of like checking in for reality right now, there is no tiger. So I don't need to be in my threat response is maybe space to have, you know, a different system in place. It takes a lot of self-talk. You know, when you joked, but weren't really joking about the fact that you've met catastrophic thinking and the fact that I have as well, you know, let's be really clear to your listeners. I can teach you how to do this because I do it myself. I spend a lot of time in my own head reminding myself to stay calm reminding myself to be rooted in reality. It's not like I am genetically calm or anything like that. It's not like this comes natural. This is work, but it's the kind of work that enables us to thrive now and in the future. And the great thing about resilience is that it's when you build resilience skills, you know, people always think it's about bouncing back, right? That's the that's the five-word definition of resilience. But in fact, when we can build resilience, we are prepared to live life to its fullest in the best of times. Part of this is also what's positive and exciting is these are such teachable practices. And so it's not a hopeless one. There's the the optimistic view is not, is true optimism in that things can get better. You can really learn these tools. And when you learn them and do them, your kids will be looking at the flight attendant doing the work herself. And it really does, in case anybody remembers that callback. Um, But I just love that because these are practices, like you're saying, these are real experiences. You can actually shift how you're wired so that you can have these responses and it does have an impact on your kids and their kids and so forth. And to me, that's quite heartening that we have agency in that way. Absolutely. You know, I'm not so much into optimism. I'm into practicality. Just to clarify, I don't mean the pop culture view of optimism. I mean, scientifically, like the view that it's possible to improve, that there's, there's potential. When you take action. Or change, when you, when take, you action. take action. That's the piece I really want to underscore, is that the stuff that you and I are talking about is not just having a positive attitude. It's about taking no. action. <laughs> right, right, right. It's about taking action to have a better life. It's about control, self-control. Yeah, no, thank you for clarifying because it's actually can be quite 
harmful to just say it's all in your attitude. Right. It's a component, but yeah, when I'm, when I talk about optimism, I definitely mean just potential for change, ideally for the better. So though we could do this all day, there's so much, um, there's so much more to talk about since we can't, I'm wondering if you were a teenager right now, or from what you've been hearing, what do you imagine teenagers right now would want their parents to hear? I think that teenagers need to have their parents understand that they're not being bratty or hyper-emotional. They are really going through some real challenges to their healthy development. Teenagers are supposed to be stretching their limits. They're supposed to be testing their boundaries. They are super learners. And it's at the edges that new knowledge comes in. So we are truly challenging them when we are saying, stay within these very discrete boundaries right now. Teenagers are supposed to be building their social lives and their social environment. And when we are limiting them from doing so, it flies in the face of how they are designed and how their brains are wired. So I think that if I was to speak on behalf of teenagers to parents, I would say, I beg you not to judge me, but instead to choose to understand me. And that is at the root of building empathy in our kids in the long run, because that's another resilience skill, right? We don't build resilient kids or empathetic kids by saying, care about other people, be empathetic. Mm -hmm. We build our empathy when we experience the benefit of people being empathetic towards us. Mm -hmm. And this is a moment, this is a moment to understand what they're going through, to join with them by their side and say, my presence is unwavering in your life. And to also understand that honoring their growing independence in whatever way you can, even if you're inside of an apartment and there's not a lot of room, giving them the privacy and the spaces to honor their independence is the best strategy towards long-term interdependence, which is really our goal. Our real goal is to remain close forever, right? My my 25-year-olds, I swear they're my best friends. And if I said that when I was 16, it would have been a problem Right. They were 16. When they were 16. Exactly. No, I'm perfect. That's, I'm so glad you said that. That's right. You're not meant to be their best friend no, I'm, at 16, but, but that that's because now you can say that now they are. You don't have they, to. They know how to stand on their own. They needed me to be firm and loving sometimes. They didn't need a pal. Now that they're standing and now that they've learned that I am actually not someone who oppressively hovers over them, right? Now we can have a genuine relationship that I have to tell you, my God, I'm loving this time. (laughs) I do want to just ask for an operationalized explanation of of a firmness because I think it will help people. So let's talk about that 16 year old 
who wants you to understand them more than judge them and who needs independence. Can you give us a couple examples of keeping your boundaries clear for what you what's acceptable or not acceptable in terms of their socializing or safety or whatever, while still honoring their need for it? Yeah, so I'm going to give you another one of those poems or metaphors, right? I love a poem. Um, Yeah, so here's the thing. You know, adolescents are trying to figure out the question, who am I? And think of that as a puzzle. And how do you put together a puzzle? First, you start with the edges. So we actually make adolescents easier for them when we give them very clear boundaries, edges beyond which they cannot stray, right? That allows them to push against the edges but stay in safe territory. Right. If you didn't have the edges, how in the world would you put that puzzle together? Beautiful. Well, I'm not done. I know, but I just want to tell you that was a beautiful, beautiful beginning. What's the next thing you do? You put together the like pieces and you put together the reds and you say, is this going to be a fire engine or a cherry? But you don't know. You don't want to wait till the end of the puzzle. So what do you do? You look at the picture on the box to cheat. Wear the picture on the box. Ah. We, when we are role models for our kids Uh and give them very clear edges, and then there's one other piece. When they are within those edges, the boundaries we've set, now they're within safe edges, we are role modeling for them how to live a good life. Then all those pieces that are left are the jagged, irregular pieces. That's where you get out of the way. That's, that's where you back you have, off. You back off because kids have to make mistakes, set boundaries, but within those boundaries, get out of the way. And right. one final thought. Yes. When you're setting those boundaries and you know this represents 60 years of research, right? Mm-hmm. When you're setting those boundaries, it's all in the framing. Mm. If you say, do what I say, why? Because I said so, expect rebellion. Mm -hmm. If you say, darling, you're my best friend. I trust you. Call me Ken. Expect them to be incredibly anxious about disappointing you. Mm -hmm. But when you say, I'm not your friend, I'm your father, which is better for you, but I love you so deeply, I'm going to let you make a lot of mistakes. But if there's something that involves your safety or that is going to get you into immoral territory, you are going to do what I say because it's my job to protect you. When we set the boundaries very clearly framed because we care and because we love them, kids will listen and appreciate it. Do you want to give the lighthouse? Yeah, so um, let's end on that lighthouse. Let's do that. So, you know, there's a very large science around balanced parenting, but what um, we at the Center for Parent and Teen Communication and in my books, what we talk about is lighthouse parenting. And it's parents, you should be like a lighthouse for your child, a stable force on the shoreline from which they can measure themselves against. Look down at the rocks and make sure that they don't crash against them. Look into the waves and trust in your child's ability to learn to ride them and prepare them to do so.